Father, as we now prepare our own hearts to come to your word, we come as beggars once again, asking for our daily bread, asking that you would feed us with your word, that you would nourish us with your word, that you would use your word to accomplish your purposes in our lives, that being above all, that we would grow in Christ's likeness. Oh, Father, we pray that you would teach us with your word, that you would rebuke us if necessary, that you would encourage us if necessary, that you would afflict us if necessary, or that you would give us assurance. Lord, you know what we need on an individual level. And so we pray that you would use your word to accomplish those purposes, that we may grow in Christ's likeness and that he may be glorified in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We'll be continuing our study of 1 Samuel, uh, looking at one of the most famous chapters in all of the Bible, of course, the chapter uh, that tells the story of David and Goliath. But there's a lot that happens leading up to the actual confrontation between David and Goliath. And these things often get overlooked. So I wanted to make sure that we don't just rush to tell the story that we've all heard so many times before, but that we glean every lesson uh, that, that's found in the lead up to the story. Last week, what we saw was that uh, what a person really believes about God uh, becomes evident when they are confronted with trials and uh, tribulations. Uh, and of course, in the case last week, that was Goliath. And it showed that every man in Israel uh, was faithless except David. Uh, so we're going to be uh, continuing in our study of uh, 1 Samuel today. And kind of central to our lesson today, to our, our passage today, is an understanding that Saul is a picture of something very specific. That Saul is not just a king. He, he was a literal king. But he's also given to us as an illustration of the unregenerate, natural, unconverted man who is innately uh, selfish and self-centered. The world is an innately selfish place. And for the Christian who understands what the Scriptures teach about the effects of the fall, the effects of sin entering into creation, uh, with a Christian who sees what the Bible teaches about how, how abundant, how deep, and how pervasive the consequences of sin entering into creation are. It's not controversial for somebody to say that the world is an innately selfish place. For the mind that is unfamiliar with biblical truth, or worst case scenario, for the mind that is darkened, it may be a controversial statement. Uh, to hear that the world is an innately selfish place because the darkened mind has been soothed and, and lulled into believing things like, you know, people are basically good. Uh, we've been given these ideas since we were young children, and yet they are totally at odds with Scripture, uh, which does not teach us that people are basically good. In fact, what it says is that none is good. 
But there are certain characters who are given to us throughout Scripture who serve as illustrations of this innate selfishness that is so central, so pervasive to humanity's nature. The first person given to us in all of Scripture who is an illustration of this just complete selfishness is Cain. Uh, Cain, obviously, the one who hated his brother Abel because the Lord was pleased with Abel's offering, whereas he rejected Cain's offering. But we read about this in Genesis chapter 4, and we see Cain confronted by God after he murders his brother Abel. And he responds when he's confronted by God by saying, Am I my brother's keeper? Those are his first words after he murders his brother. He has absolutely zero concern for Abel. But did he have concern for his own well-being? Of course he did, absolutely. Because when God tells Cain what the consequences of his sin will be, he says to God in Genesis chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, he says, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. So in, in Cain's mind... It, it, wasn't, it wasn't fair. It wasn't just that he would be uh, killed by somebody, which is ironic since he just killed his innocent brother, and yet he's not innocent. But Cain exemplifies humanity in the sense that he was just selfish to the core. And it's no surprise then that the next character that we're introduced to uh, is a man named Lamech. Uh, in Genesis chapter 4. And uh, Lamech is the one who writes the first song that gets recorded in Scripture. It's a song in which he boasts about how he killed a man. Selfishness had become central to man's being and nature in the fall. And both Cain and his descendant Lamech were, uh, were pictures of this. They exemplified this principle. Now in our study of 1 Samuel, we've been introduced to yet another character who serves to, to illustrate that selfishness is central to, uh, to human nature, and that of course is the man chosen to serve as Israel's first king, King Saul. Uh, king Saul was an innately selfish person. He had every reason. Let's think about this. Think about all the things, all the places that Saul has gone wrong. He had every reason to, first of all, to know God because he was an Israelite. He had every reason to believe God. After all, immediately after meeting Samuel, Samuel laid out some very specific prophecies of things that were going to happen. And of course, Saul, uh, Saul saw all these prophecies come to pass. Uh, he had every reason to know God. He had every reason to believe God. He had every reason to trust God. After all, he had seen the way that the Lord had delivered uh, Jonathan on the battlefield. Uh, how he had given Jonathan victory against the Philistine army uh, when they went to war. So he had every reason to know God, to believe God, to trust God, and thus he had every reason in the world to obey God. And yet, when God had instructed Saul to go to war against the Amalekites, uh, telling him to, uh, that they were to uh, eliminate uh, the Amalekites as a result of their sin. It was God's judgment against their sin. King Saul disobeyed. Uh, he kept the king of the Amalekites alive, apparently for selfish reasons. 
But when Samuel was sent to speak to King Saul about his disobedience, we were told that in the aftermath of this battle that King Saul had just had against the Amalekites, uh, King Saul had done what was probably the single most narcissistic thing imaginable. He built a monument to himself in the wake of his disobedience to God. I mean, that is so incredibly and unbelievably selfish. It's just, it's comical. But Saul was a picture. He was an illustration of the selfishness that is central to humanity by nature. David, on the other hand, is a complete contrast to Saul. David is the exact opposite. Like Samuel, David is a picture of the difference that God makes in a person's life. Uh, For that reason, we've seen that there's this huge difference between Saul and David. Uh, Saul was a man who was more preoccupied with the pursuit of his own agenda, his own glory, if you will, than he was with God's glory and God's promises and purposes in the world. Uh, Saul's glory was Saul's motivation. You need to understand that. That's what Saul was motivated by. He was motivated by the pursuit of his own glory. And today as we continue looking at this encounter between uh, David and Goliath of Gath, the, the warrior giant who had come to mock God and to taunt God's people, it's important that we see what David's motivation was. What drove David to do what he did? Uh, let's remember that the heart in biblical terms, that's talking about your motivation, right? Why do you do what you do? It has to do with the heart. And David has been described as a man who is after God's own heart. Saul, on the other hand, was a, a man after his own heart, uh, looking at his own glory as his motivation. But as we consider David's motivation, as we consider David's heart, my hope is that doing so will prompt us to consider our own motivations in life as well, to take a look at our own hearts as well. So today we'll be looking at this dialogue that takes place between David and King Saul before David goes out to deal with this uncircumcised Philistine named Goliath of Gath. This dialogue is found in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 31 to 40. That's the passage that we'll be looking at today. But the point of this passage is that when God's glory is our primary motivation, we find the courage uh, to, to face daunting challenges with unwavering faith, trusting in His grace, trusting in God's wisdom, and trusting in His means of overcoming obstacles that may seem insurmountable from our perspective rather than trusting in the world's ways and the world's devices. If the pursuit of God's glory is our motivation, our primary motivation, then we want to do everything that we do in a way that pleases and glorifies God. The world would tempt us in every way to put our faith, to put our trust in something or someone other than God, which is always something or someone less than God. The world always tempts us to do that, to trust in lesser things. And this would be a temptation that David would face as he prepares to do what no other man in all of Israel has the faith in God to do. And that is trusting in God to deliver him from his enemy. 
David had been instructed by his father to deliver provisions, uh, food to his brothers and to uh, their officers, and to then report back to his father Jesse on how his brothers were doing. Uh, upon reaching the front line, David had heard and had been absolutely disgusted by the taunts of Goliath of Gath, who was not only making a mockery of Israel, he was making a mockery of Israel, but he also sought to make a mockery of the one true living God of Israel. David had heard that King Saul would be offering a rich rich bounty, this incredible reward for anyone who could beat uh, Goliath of Gath out on the battlefield. But David's outrage was reflected in the words that we read that he spoke in verse 26, uh, where he said this, he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? In other words, the, the, the fact that he was uncircumcised meant that this giant had no covenant with God. That's what circumcision represents. But we saw that, uh, this, that David saying this actually deeply wounded the pride of his brother Eliab, who falsely rebuked David for being there for wicked purposes, and that being to see the battle. Uh, but apparently didn't only wound the pride of Eliab because David's words would end up getting back to King Saul rather quickly. And that's where this next installment in our study picks up. So let's look at verses 31 and 32 of chapter 17. It says, When the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. So the words that were repeated before King Saul were pretty much undoubtedly the words that we read in verse 26. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Let's consider these words for a second so that we can understand why David is so upset and why they were so offensive to David's countrymen. Uh, the first implication of those words, uh, the thing that made these taunts so egregious and so outlandish was the fact that they were made toward the army and not just any earthly army, but specifically the armies of the living God. It was the fact that these armies represented the living God, Yahweh, that made these taunts so disgusting, so revolting in David's mind. Secondly, implied in these words, is that Yahweh, the, the one true living God, should be feared and should be revered and respected by all people, including this uncircumcised Philistine who had no covenant to speak of with God. Now, the third implication is that because this army, the Israel army, represented the living God, Yahweh, they should have trusted and been emboldened by God against their foes, or in this case, against their foe. 
Uh, the fourth implication is David clearly, clearly realized that the fear of God drives away the fear of man. If the army of Israel had feared God rightly, they wouldn't have been running away from Goliath. They wouldn't have even feared Goliath or anyone of any size. If you fear God, it drives out fears of everything else, including giants. Uh, fifth, and, and the, the last implication, uh, is that anyone who speaks such insults against the living God and against His people is not worthy of being feared. So, the fact that they did fear Him tells them that they didn't fear God. That's the implication, right? We know that the armies of Israel were already enslaved to Goliath because they were already being controlled by fear. Maybe they had rightly caught the implication in David's words that the reason they feared Goliath of Gath was because they didn't rightly fear the true living God that they represented or were supposed to represent. Maybe they didn't even know this living God at all. That's kind of an implication in what David said. And while his words and the implications that are found in his words may have wounded the pride of the men on the battlefield, the question really is, were his words true? And the answer to that is yes, they were unquestionably true, and I would say they also needed to be said. It was, an, it was the right time to rebuke them as a, as a means of rallying them up and saying, hey, wake up, snap out of your... They needed to fear God more than believe in the living God. They did need to fear God. They needed to fear God more than they feared men, just like you and I need to fear God more than we fear man. But in the end, in David's mind, this wasn't a situation in which Israel's glory was on the line as much as it was a situation in which God's glory was on the line. So here is King Saul calling David before him. King Saul, the, the rejected king of Israel, whose kingship had been characterized through and through by the selfish pursuit of his own glory, characterized by continual disobedience to God. He was a man who did not know God and who wasn't bothered in the least bit by the fact that he didn't know God. That never seems to have troubled him. What troubled him was the consequences of his disobedience, being rejected by God. He didn't like that, but at the same time, he was never, ever concerned about the fact that he didn't know God. And it's for this reason that we shouldn't be surprised that he hasn't stepped out in faith against Goliath. And without even knowing it, here stands before him, before Saul, the rightful king, a young man who isn't even old enough to be in the military yet. Uh, just a young boy. And one of the things that I want you to see here is how quickly and how efficiently David takes charge of the conversation that ensues between him and King Saul. Uh, David's words to King Saul bear striking resemblance to the gospel. Uh, listen carefully to what David says. I think you'll hear the resemblance for yourselves as well. David says to Saul, upon entering Saul's presence, he says to him, let no man's heart fail on account of him, that is on account of Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. 
to say it as frankly as I possibly can, as clearly as I possibly can, when we consider all of the different factors surrounding this conversation, David's words are complete foolishness. They sound completely foolish. They sound outrageous. They sound ludicrous. And they're outrageous for at least two reasons. First, David gives Saul an instruction. This young boy gives the king an instruction. Note, note that it's in the imperative tense. He says, let no man's heart fail on account of him, of this giant, of Goliath of Gath. He's talking to Saul too, by the way. He's not only talking about all the men out on the battlefield. He's saying, same to you, King Saul. Don't let your heart fail you on account of this giant. Here's this shepherd boy instructing the king who towers over him and over every man in Israel. Here's this shepherd boy instructing the king not to be afraid. The natural mind will look at this and they might condescendingly think, well, bless David's heart. Isn't that so cute that he'd instruct the, the king not to be afraid? Bless his heart, which is just another way of saying that's completely foolish. Uh, because the fact of the matter is that Goliath of Gath had this imposing figure, right? He was an imposing figure. He personified absolute terror. But one glance at him was enough to drain even a great and extremely experienced warrior of every ounce of self-confidence that he might have in himself. No, in the natural man's mind, if there was any advice, if there was any counsel that David should have come in there and given him regarding Goliath, it would have been something like, run for your life. Or, hey king, let's just, let's just raise the white flag and, and get this over with. But to say... Fear not. To instruct the king, don't be afraid. That's absolutely ridiculous. It's foolishness. In fact, in the natural man's mind, nothing more foolish could have been said to Saul in these circumstances, except maybe the second thing that he says. We're going to get to that in a second. But what we need to understand, friends, is there's a similarity to the gospel here in that the gospel to the natural man is also foolishness. Uh, when you consider the number of sins that you have committed, when you consider the fact that the first and greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength, and when you consider that you have not done that for one second, for one nanosecond of your entire life, and when you consider that you have sinned relentlessly against a holy and righteous and just God who sees it all and who must punish all sin, the gospel puts our fears to rest. And it says to us, fear not. Do not be afraid. It tells us that God's love for us is great and perfect and that God loved us enough that He took on flesh to die for us, to die for our sins, and to live for us so that we could have the righteousness that God requires. It reminds us that, the gospel reminds us that there is no fear of who God's perfect love casts out fear. 
If we are aware of who God is and how much God hates sin and what He must do with sin, the most ridiculous counsel in the world, the most foolish advice in the world from the natural mindset is to say to sinners like you and me, don't be afraid. Don't let your heart fail. Well, there's one more thing that might have been more foolish than what David started by saying. That is what he said the second, uh, in the second place. Uh, David says, and it's the reason that no man's heart should fear. He says, your servant will go and fight this Philistine. At this point, David, this, this little shepherd boy, he just sounds downright crazy. Here's this, this young shepherd who, who probably doesn't even have enough facial hair to have a full beard yet, who has no stature to speak of, no military battles that he has lived through to tell the stories of, and he's saying that he's going to go out into battle against this giant. Now, think about this for a moment. It seemed like an absolutely terrible idea in Saul's mind. The tallest man engaged in battle with Goliath of Gath. And Saul was not only the tallest man in all of Israel, but more significant than that is that he had gained much experience on the battlefield against Israel's enemies already at this point. So if it's a terrible idea in Saul's mind for Saul to go to battle against Goliath, it's exponentially more foolish. In fact, it's audacious to send a young boy who was small in stature and who had no battlefield experience to speak of into battle against this fierce giant. The idea is simply beyond mere audacity. In the natural man's mind, it's about the most foolish idea imaginable. But the truth of the matter is that the reason that Saul and all of the men in Israel's army were filled with fear is because they were seeing as man sees. They were not seeing the situation as God sees. And the reason that David wasn't afraid is because he saw things as God sees things, not as man sees things. But we need to see that this story it's really something of an illustration of the principle that we encountered in the previous chapter, back in chapter 16, verse 7, where the Lord instructed Samuel regarding David's brother Eliab, saying, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Something else that's kind of striking here but can kind of get lost in all the details is we should make note of how meek and how humble David is. Remember that meekness doesn't mean weakness. Meekness means you, you've got these rights, you've got these privileges, but you're willing to lay them aside like Jesus did. But David has a meekness about him. He's already been anointed as the next king of Israel. And so he's, he's got rights. He's got privileges, right? And yet consider how lowly he considers himself that he should refer to himself as Saul's servant. The proposition here is that Israel would be rescued by a meek and humble servant king. The foreshadows of the gospel are absolutely everywhere 
here in verse 32. Consider how they compare to the announcement of Christ's birth in Luke, uh, in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, uh, since it's Christmas Eve, we may as well go with the Christmas passage. Uh, in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, the angel declares to the shepherds, Do not be afraid. Why? For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. See the, we see the, the same elements uh, here that we saw in David's words, don't we? First, don't, don't be afraid. D- don't let your heart fail. Why not? Because secondly, this newborn baby, this infant, this child who's been born in a manger is going to reconcile you to God. He's going to slay the enemy of your soul for you. You're going to be saved by this newborn child who wasn't born in a castle, but who was born in a lowly manger. Just as David's words sound like foolishness to Saul, the gospel is foolishness to the fallen, unnatural man's mind. Paul states that very clearly for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, where he writes this. He says, For the word of the cross is foolishness, to those who are perishing. Who are perishing? Those who haven't been saved. Those who haven't believed in Jesus. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And the natural man has plenty of ways of coming to this conclusion that the gospel is just absolute foolishness. Maybe one of them is he he thinks it's foolishness because he thinks that it would be unnecessary Uh, After all, in his mind, you know, he's not such a bad person after all uh, compared to this guy or compared to that guy. You know, he's not such a bad person that God would actually need to condescend to take on flesh and and live a perfect life and die for for his sins. Uh, Maybe the gospel sounds like foolishness then because the natural man thinks to himself, you know, I just don't have that many sins. And what sins I do have, they, they just aren't that bad. Again, comparing himself to other people, not comparing himself to God or to God's standards. Or maybe he thinks to himself, maybe the natural man comes to this conclusion because he thinks to himself, you know, it's foolishness because he's able to do enough good things on his own that he can redeem himself. Uh, After all, maybe he thinks, you know, his good deeds outweigh his bad deeds. And if God is truly just, he thinks to himself, he'll account for this very clear imbalance. He pays no mind to the fact that God's Word tells us that our best deeds, that all of our, our good works are like filthy rags to God. And he pays no mind to the fact that the Scriptures clearly teach that none is righteous and none does good. Not even one. People think that the Gospel is foolish for the same reason that Saul would have thought that David's words were just pure foolishness. Because they, like Saul, do not see things from God's perspective. And so it's foolishness to them. And the fact that Saul thinks it to be pure foolishness is actually reflected in his response to David, which we read in verse 33. He says, Then Saul 
Then Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, while he has been a warrior from his youth. So from Saul's perspective, no man in Israel was a match for this giant named Goliath of Gath. And if no man in Israel was a match for this giant, then certainly neither was this young shepherd boy. But apparently... Uh, Saul was familiar with Goliath of Gath. Maybe he had heard about him before because he seems to have been aware of the fact that Goliath of Gath had been a warrior since Goliath's youth. But what's interesting here is that Saul appeals to David based on Goliath's experience rather than Goliath's size. Uh, But I think it's probably because the imposing size of Goliath was obvious to anyone who saw him, whereas perhaps he was thinking that David didn't know Goliath's history as a warrior since his youth. Whatever the case may be, one thing is clear from Saul's response. What he heard was foolishness to him. And so he refused to believe the good news that David came to proclaim to him. And from a purely naturalistic perspective, perhaps we can understand why he would not believe. He was wrong to disbelieve, but we might be able to understand just a little bit why he couldn't believe and wouldn't believe nevertheless. John Woodhouse notes in his commentary, he says, quote, there's a striking contrast between Saul's estimate here of the young man standing before him and the estimate given by another earlier in the narrative, end quote. And he's referring, of course, to uh, the, the man who had heard David playing his songs on the harp, uh, the man who had suggested that David be brought in to play music that would put Saul's mind at peace. But do you remember how he had described David in the previous chapter? He had said of David in verse 18 of chapter 16, he said, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. Now given these qualities and given what we know about the Lord, Saul had every reason to believe David's good news. But Saul would not trust in the Lord. And for that reason, he wouldn't believe David's good news. But David, David has a patience and a persistence and a way with words that is... Uh, just next to divine. He does not give up easily, and he proves it uh, in the way that he responds to Saul's uh, refusal to let him go out onto the battlefield. So the conversation continues with David responding in verses 34 to 37. It says, But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or bear came and took a lamb from the flock. I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from its mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. 
So David did have a way with words, just like the young man had, uh, who had recommended him in chapter 16 had reported. But David responds by telling King Saul and us about an experience or two that he's had. Experiences which prepared him and qualified him for the job at hand. Uh, as a shepherd, David had defended many sheep from deadly and dangerous predators, deadly and dangerous situations. When bears or lions had come looking for a lamb uh, to take as a meal, David didn't just let them take off with the, with the animal in its mouth. No, David gave chase. He didn't back down. He gave chase facing these uh, dangerous predators, these beasts, head on with courage and with valor like a mighty warrior. David knew that Goliath wasn't more of a threat to him than these dangerous beasts had been. There seems to have been something of a pause between verses 36 and 37. You'll see that verse 37 starts with, and David said, even though David's been the one speaking. So there seems to have been something of maybe a pause here between verses 36 and 37, because that would have been Saul's opportunity to speak, to say something, to either accept David's proposal or to reject and argue more against David's proposal. Uh, maybe he was just still thinking about how David didn't really have any experience that equated to this. He didn't have any battlefield experience. Great, he had slayed uh, bears and lions. That's one thing. They have no armor. They don't really have a defense, but slaying a giant warrior on the battlefield just wasn't the same thing. So maybe Saul is just mulling this over and thinking it's just not the same. And so David breaks the apparent silence to assure Saul that it is ultimately the same thing. He says this, he says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David's argument is that this situation is really no different. Just as God had been faithful to deliver David from death uh, you know, in the jaws of a lion or a bear, God would be faithful to deliver David from the hand of Goliath of Gath. See, what David knew was that behind his efforts, behind his works, behind his faithfulness to rescue and to deliver sheep from the jaws of these fierce predators found in the animal kingdom, was God's hand. God's hand was behind it all. It wasn't because David was so great. It was because God is so great. It wasn't because David is so faithful. It was because God is so faithful. And God had been faithful to deliver him. And the same God who delivered David from these fierce predators would deliver him from the hands of this Philistine giant. And by extension, the argument is that if God would be faithful to deliver David from the hand of Goliath, then Israel would be delivered from the threat of being enslaved to the Philistines. In a way that is contingent confidence that David has, he doesn't state this in a way that is contingent. He doesn't state, you know, it's not that there are any ifs about it in David's proposal. In his mind, victory over this Philistine was more than just a, a possibility. No, he speaks in very certain terms. He doesn't say, if the Lord wills, he will deliver me. 
he says, Yahweh, the Lord, will deliver me. David knew the outcome. He knew the outcome of this battle ahead of time because he knew the Lord. He knew Yahweh ahead of time. He knew that God delivers. And he knew that the Lord is faithful. His confidence isn't in himself here. It's important that we see that. His confidence is in God. His confidence is in God. Not in himself, not in his experience, not in anything. His experience just proved what God is capable of doing. He trusted entirely in Yahweh to deliver him. One commentator notes of this passage, he says this, quote, Goliath's challenge was a challenge to the glory and power and honor of the Lord of hosts, end quote. And that was all the motivation that David needed. David's chief motivation here is clearly seen. His chief motivation here is zeal for the glory of God. And David knew that God would be faithful. God had a long history of delivering those who were motivated to action by and for the glory of God. And David knew, based on God's character, based on God's history, and based on God's jealousy for His glory and for His people, that God would show up and that God would deliver David from the hand of any enemy, even this seemingly unbeatable enemy. Now notice with me that David doesn't say a single thing about that bounty. He doesn't say a single thing about the earthly treasure that King Saul had promised to the person who defeats Goliath. He never says, hey, and by the way, uh, is it true that I, I get all these things and that basically I get prince status if I, if I beat Goliath? He never says any of those things because David's motivation, his primary concern was not for earthly treasure. David's primary concern was a holy zeal for the glory of God. He wasn't motivated, first and foremost, by earthly treasure. And earthly treasure can't be our primary motivation either. Do you see the unhappiness of those who have a kajillion dollars and yet they're miserable? They're unhappy people. Money can't buy happiness. Earthly treasure comes and goes. David isn't interested in it. It's not his primary motivation it can't be ours either. Friends, the glory of God alone must be our primary motivation in all that we do. Let me ask you this. Would it make a difference in the way that you approach your job every day if you went in to work thinking, my primary responsibility here today is to glorify God? Yeah, I'll get a paycheck for it. Great. I'm not motivated by that, first and foremost. I'm motivated, by, uh, first and foremost, by zeal for the glory of God in my workplace, in wherever I, wherever I go, whatever I do today. Would that make a difference in your life? You better believe it would. It would. We were saved. You need to understand this. The reason that we were saved is to glorify God. We were saved in order that the glory of God's amazing delivering grace would be put on display in our lives. All that God does, every single thing that God does, demonstrates His glory. 
That the person who is saved is a demonstration of the glory of His grace. And even the person who refuses to believe and will not be saved is a demonstration of the glory of His justice. Either way, God is glorified in everything that He does. And all that He does is for the demonstration of His glory. Let us, therefore, do nothing for the sake primarily of personal gain. Selfishness is the antithesis. It's it's the opposite of doing things for God's glory. Selfishness is an aspect of the curse of sin. The, The same curse from which all who believe on Jesus have been set free. You see, selfishness is humanity's, it's really ultimately humanity's way of saying back to God, I I, I don't want to trust in you. I I want this to be about me. I I want to provide for myself. I'll, I'll, I'll do things my own way. We, on the other hand, who have been saved, who have believed on Christ, we have every reason to be selfless and to be content. There should be no such thing as a Christian who is discontent. And so let us strive to seek ways to glorify God in all that we do, whether we're on a mountaintop or in a valley, whether we're in the middle of great circumstances, ideal circumstances, or if we are in the middle of very difficult circumstances, knowing that if glorifying God is our primary motivation, we will find that God will be faithful to grant us the courage to face daunting challenges with unwavering faith. He'll give us the grace to trust in His, in his providence, to trust in His wisdom, and to trust in the means that He has given us of overcoming obstacles that may seem insurmountable from our perspective rather than trusting in the world's ways and devices. God will be faithful. Speaking of the world's ways and devices, Saul gives David approval for going to battle with Goliath. He says, go and let the Lord be with you. What he doesn't realize is that the Spirit of God is already upon him. It's already upon David. But he gives David approval for going into battle against Goliath. But before David leaves, Saul is going to tempt David to put his trust in battle in something far, far less than God. Let's continue, verses 38 to 40. It says, Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. He took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch. And his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. What's clear here? about Saul is that Saul just doesn't get it. Saul is so lacking in true understanding here. He's still filled with senseless unbelief toward God because even though David made it clear to him that the battle was not based on his skill but was based on the Lord's faithfulness, 
even though he said all these things and laid all these things out, Saul still thinks that David could probably use some equipment. And so he equips him with whatever, the best military equipment that they had to, to give to David. But the temptation that David faces here, the temptation is that David would think that this armor would increase the odds of him surviving a battle against Goliath. The irony is that it's not difficult to imagine how, uh, because it was sized for a much, much larger man, it would have only hindered David in battle, wouldn't it? What David needed wasn't for Saul's battle armor to be upon him, but for the Spirit of God to be upon him. And indeed, the Spirit of God already was upon him. Richard Phillips notes this. He says, quote, Saul was conveying goodwill to David and providing him help, but in a way that expressed his own reliance on worldly strength. End quote. So David's faith, his confidence in God is being tested here. And listen to me very closely, friends. If you commit to trusting in the Lord and to glorifying God in all that you do as your primary motivation for everything, you will face tests of your faith as well. You will face tests of your faith as well. Just as it was important for David to know how to say yes to to God, to, to facing the challenge of this Philistine giant, it was equally important that he know how to say no to man's wisdom and man's methods of going into war. And the same will be true for you and me. Praise be to God. David would not be a man, a king, in the tradition of Saul. He would be a king who did things God's way because it was all about God's glory. It wasn't about David's glory. It wasn't about Saul's glory. Ultimately, it wasn't even about Israel's glory. This is primarily, above all, about God's glory. God would, therefore, be faithful. And David knew it. And so the armor was not needed. What was needed was the Spirit of God upon him and faith. Like the heroes of the Bible, including David here in our text, friends, our greatest need in a world filled with Goliaths and Saul's is simply faith. With faith in God's Word, faith in God's faithfulness, faith in God's power, the battles that we face must be fought with the weapons that God has provided, the weapons that He has equipped us with, and not with worldly weapons and devices. Paul explains exactly why, Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's ultimately what David's battle was against as well. It ultimately wasn't against flesh and blood. It was against powers, evil powers. Goliath wasn't just a giant. He was also a representation of satanic powers. And like David, Jesus didn't come to do battle in the ways that the world understands battle. Rather, Jesus, like David, was meek and lowly. David was a foreshadowing. He was a type of Christ pointed toward the future coming of the Messiah. 
Pontius Pilate was confused by the fact that the king of the Jews could be brought before him, and yet there wouldn't be chaos. And so when, when, uh, when Jesus had nothing to do or say when he was brought before Pilate, Pilate asked Jesus, are, are you the king of the Jews? That's a good question. And Jesus' response to him was, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. It's from John chapter 18, verse 36. As surely as Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Our primary citizenship is not of this world. And so our primary motivation for things can't be something in this world. It has to be something bigger and better. We aren't to be motivated to action primarily by a desire to, to bring the culture back to how it used to be or to preserve an element of the culture or even to change the culture. Our primary motivation must be to glorify God in all that we do. And to that end, He has given us the Gospel to preach as a means of advancing His kingdom. That's how the Gospel changes lives. Not by force, but by preaching. He's given us His Spirit and His Word to guide us as light to our paths. And He has given us faith to walk by. Friends, Jesus still wages war on behalf of His people even today. He still casts out darkness. He still overcomes every bit of resistance in His people. He still gathers His sheep to Himself through the faithful preaching of His Gospel by His people. He will call all of His sheep. Not one will be lost. All that the Father has given Him he will ensure to the end. He will build His church. And He has promised that His purposes will never fail. And so in light of that, if we're confident in that, then let us resolve that may every purpose of ours fail if they be anything less than demonstrating the glory of God in everything that we do, in every aspect of our lives. And may zeal for His glory be our primary motivation. May it be what motivates us to serve Him well with all the good gifts with which He has entrusted us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we once again thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for the foolishness of the gospel because it ensures that we cannot boast in anything about ourselves but that we can only boast in you that in your goodness in your wisdom the message which would have been foolishness to our minds was seen as wisdom was seen as the one and only hope that we could possibly have of being saved saved from the penalty of our sin, saved from the power of our sin. And one day, the presence. Oh, Father, we thank You that in Your goodness, You helped us to understand that we were 
lost without you, lost without your grace, that we were sinners who had offended you in every way. And yet you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to provide exactly what you require, to live the perfect life, the sinless life, that we haven't lived for one nanosecond in order that his perfect righteousness could be credited to us so that we could stand before you in Christ's white robes of righteousness. Oh, Father, our Christ would be glorified in our lives. Lord, we confess to you that we face the temptations and sometimes we fail when we're tempted to make other things our primary motivation in life. But we thank you that with you there is grace. With you there is patience and forgiveness. And we pray, Lord, that with your Spirit working within us, that we would do all that we do, whether we eat or drink, whatever it may be, that we would do it all for the glory of him who died for us, that we may live, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.